This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about Obama and his legacy. We'll talk about him with David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent. He's also the new legal director of the ACLU. We'll ask him about today's turmoil around civil rights, which he says may be a testament to the progress Obama has made. But first up, 2016 wasn't all bad. Today we want to remember some of the people who fought the good fight and sometimes even won. Activists who pointed the way in the resistance to come. For that, we turn to John Nichols, who has this year's progressive honor role. John, of course, is the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is People Get Ready. We reach him today in San Francisco. Hi, John. Hello, John. How are you? Pretty good. We don't want to let Donald Trump erase the good things people accomplished in 2016. And at the top of our progressive honor roll for 2016, of course, is the Bernie Sanders campaign. He got 13 million votes in the Democratic primaries, by far the most any Democratic socialist has ever received in American history. Let's spend a few minutes recalling what Bernie achieved and what it means for the coming four years. Well, I think the Sanders campaign stood out even for people who didn't back Sanders. And that's the important thing to understand. Once the primary process was done, uh, the Clinton campaign recognized it had to adopt as much as it could of the Sanders uh, themes. It didn't always do so, um, in my opinion, as well or as wisely as it should have been. But that's the real measure of having an impact when uh, even the people you were challenging recognize that something major was going on. And the major thing that was going on, that which mattered in 2016, and will matter long beyond 2016, was a recognition of two things I think that are really important. First off, uh, the concept of democratic socialism, or at least some social democratic rearrangement that creates a, a much stronger welfare state, that 
uh, provides for free college, free health care, free uh, transportation services, a host of other needs in society, and does so by a fair taxation of the very wealthy and, and a fair distribution of the benefits of a, of a massive economy. That's not some unattractive concept. That's not some radical concept that, that people can't buy into. Across this country, tens of millions of people paid attention to it. Huge numbers of people voted for it. States uh, were won. Delegate totals were added up. And Sanders became a profoundly influential figure in the political process. What's interesting, of course, is that in addition to that first signal, which is pretty significant if you're just kind of looking at measures of progressive politics in the 21st century, is a second one. And that is that this embrace, this recognition that uh, a much bolder progressive vision uh, was possible and appealing politically was driven especially by young people, uh, people under the age of 30, certainly people under the age of 40. And in some states, Bernie Sanders was getting as much as 80% of the vote of people under the age of 30. This is just an unprecedented, remarkable phenomenon. And if we have any interest in the future, if we're intrigued by um, where the coming generations are headed and what they may embrace, what they may be interested in, I think we got a very powerful signal from what happened in 2016. Second on our progressive honor roll is the most valuable struggle of 2016. Uh, who did you pick there? I picked the Dakota Access Pipeline fight, which was waged by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and its many allies in initially the environmental movement, but as time went on, the, the broader social justice movement. And this was a remarkable struggle because uh, it only came into the consciousness of most Americans, certainly some people were engaged long before, but of most Americans, very late in the game. And so what really happened was small tribe in North Dakota made a determination that their water was threatened, that their sacred sites were threatened, that their lives were uh, really being profoundly impacted by decisions of multinational corporations uh, as regards a $3.8 billion massive multi-state pipeline, and they chose to take a stand. They chose to say, hey, at this place where you must cross to complete this pipeline, we're not going to embrace it. We're not going to let you do this. We're going to say no. That was a, an audacious act, a bold act, and one that, again, initially got only limited attention. But as the year went on, and as this tribe and its allies began to draw more people to their protest site in North Dakota, uh, something remarkable occurred. Uh, the word started to get out. The understanding of what was at stake started to spread, not just across the United States, but around the world. Some very bold political figures stepped up, Bernie Sanders, of course, but also Tulsi Gabbard and others who said, you know, this is something, this is a big deal. Jill Stein, the Green Party presidential candidate, went to North Dakota. Amy Goodman went to North Dakota. Both of them were threatened with arrest for being, you know, in Amy Goodman's case, simply for reporting on what was going on. And, you know, as all of this spun forward, as this all generated, the attention to what was happening expanded. And 
federal officials who had been so very neglectful started to pay attention. And the year ended with a remarkable moment where federal Army Corps of Engineers folks and others said they were not going to issue the required permits. Uh, that doesn't stop this pipeline for sure. I think the struggle is going to go on. But it was a remarkable signal of what can be done when people stand up and, and object. And it's certainly a, a powerful uh, indication of what's going to be needed and what is going to be possible during the Trump years. Both of these, the Bernie campaign and the Standing Rock campaign, at the beginning, you would have said these don't stand a chance. There's no way they can accomplish much right. of anything. And both of them had astounding success. And we can certainly learn from that. Next on the progressive honor roll, I want to talk about the most valuable mayor. Who do you think is the most valuable mayor of the last year? That's the mayor of Flint, Michigan. Again, we're talking about struggles that initially got very, very little attention and then over time began to come into the public consciousness. As we know, Flint was badly battered by terrible policy choices and awful neglect from the state government of Michigan and, frankly, from a lot of other folks. In 2015, Flint elected a new mayor, and she went to work doing everything in her power to get attention to Flint's circumstance and also to make sure that politicians who might you know, show up and say, oh, we're sure interested in what's happening in Flint, or, you know, wow, it's really sad what happened there, that they didn't just you know, kind of tip their hat, but that they also made commitments as regards the aid and the accountability that was required. So she did, a, in my opinion, just did a remarkable job of taking a, a position that uh, wasn't necessarily all that empowered. As mayor of Flint, she didn't have, um, you know, all the power she needed to fix every problem. But she did have the platform from which to talk to presidential candidates, the president of the United States, the governor of Michigan, who should be held to account and others. So I think that's where you really saw something quite remarkable. And we're talking here about Dr. Karen Weaver, a name that's still uh, not very well known in the United States. And I think she did a tremendous amount for her city over this last year. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. One of the lowest points of Trump's presidential campaign came on the final weekend when he went to Minneapolis to attack the Somali community there, Muslim refugees who've settled in Minneapolis. Because of Somali refugees, Trump said, quote, you have suffered enough in Minnesota, close quote. That was the Sunday night before the election day on Tuesday. And John Nichols, what was the response of Minneapolis two days later? <laughs> well, you know, Trump chose to go to Minnesota because he thought he could win there. And, you know, the Minnesota, the final result in Minnesota was close. But there was a, an incredibly strong rejection of Donald Trump's candidacy in the Twin Cities. And, interestingly enough, there was also a very strong embrace of the candidacy of Ilhan Omar. She is a Somali Muslim, uh, a refugee who came to America seeking, uh, obviously, safety, but also freedom and an ability to you know, engage politically. She's the first Somali Muslim woman elected to a state legislature in the United States, and she did so with an incredibly bold, incredibly aggressive campaign 
that that really was as much educational as political. And if there could be, uh, in many ways, a perfect counter to Trump and Trumpism, it, it must be the election of Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar, the most valuable new state legislator on our progressive honor roll, representing Minneapolis in the Minnesota state legislature. Uh, John, we've only got a couple minutes left here, and we've basically just scratched the surface of this year's progressive honor roll. Who else should we mention? Well, there's so many folks that we should mention and, and be conscious of. The, the honor roll obviously looks a lot at politics, but it also looks at culture and and different activist movements. And I, and I think it's very important to note that uh, Tom Morello, the great rocker, went out with uh, his Prophets of Rage and uh, really stirred up a lot of good politics uh, with a lot of good music this year. And so we celebrate him. Uh, we celebrate uh, the movie Snowden and uh, the activist movements that grew out of it with the ACLU and others stepping up to use the attention to the movie to uh, argue for a pardon of Edward Snowden. And we celebrate uh, some remarkable breakthrough wins uh, in referendums, including in the state of Maine, where they have restructured their election system to now have a form of instant runoff voting. What that means is you don't waste your vote or you don't uh, lose your vote if you uh, choose to back uh, a candidate who doesn't win in the election because votes are redistributed upward to your second choice or third choice. And that's going to open up and, I think, revitalize the politics of Maine, a state that actually has many good progressive traditions and yet has had an extremely right-wing governor uh, elected with minority vote uh, in recent uh, cycles. So those are a handful of the of the results we've seen that, that were exciting. And, and what we really try to do with the honor roll every uh, year is to point out to people that there's stuff happening beyond Washington, some of which comes into Washington, like uh, Pramila Jayapal, the new uh, congresswoman from Seattle, Washington, who we recognize for her incredible combination of inside and outside inside politics, outside activism, kind of bringing movements into the halls of first the Washington State Legislature, now the Congress. And um, bottom line of what we're trying to say is that there, the media in this country doesn't do a particularly good job of covering politics beyond the presidential level. But for progressives, some of the most exciting uh, and hopeful politics is occurring at the grassroots across the country. And some of the most exciting cultural and media activism is occurring at the grassroots across the country, and we really try to highlight it. John Nichols with this year's Progressive Honor Roll. Read it at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. A great honor to be with you. We're still thinking about Obama and his legacy, and one of the big debates among our friends is about Obama's record on civil rights and civil liberties. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent and the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. And he starts a new job in another couple of weeks, National Legal Director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, there's a widespread sense that things 
seem to have gotten worse for people of color over the last several years. At least that's what Black Lives Matter has been about. There's a sense that Trump exposed a racism that had been growing and a sense that Obama somehow should have done more, especially since he had been a community organizer in Chicago in his youth. Then he'd been a professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago. What do you think about Obama's accomplishments in civil rights? I think we're going to miss him when he's gone. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I think he actually did uh, quite a bit. You know, in the area of racial justice, just for example, uh, clearly the number one issue in racial justice going forward is the criminal justice system and the inequities in the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, harsh sentences for low-level offenses and the like. And President Obama and his Attorney General Eric Holder uh, did more than any other president uh, or Attorney General to address that problem, to uh, criticize uh, the, the war on drugs, to criticize mandatory minimums, to press for amendments of uh, federal laws that, uh, that impose mandatory minimums and, and uh, impose very disparate sentences for crack and powder cocaine. He's the first president to uh, visit a prison. His attorney general directed U.S. attorneys, prosecutors across the country, not to charge the highest crime available for a given set of facts, which is what John Ashcroft had required of U.S. attorneys and was their march, it was still their marching orders when Holder came in, but rather to uh, engage in smart justice, uh, you know, singling out people who pose real uh, violent threats uh, and uh, and not charging the harshest uh, sentence uh, or crime for people who uh, don't, who don't deserve it. And as a result, over the course of the Obama administration. Federal incarceration levels have gone down. Federal prosecution levels have gone down. Um, for the first time in, in, in 40 years, the, 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 we're, we're headed in the right direction on mass incarceration, not the wrong direction. And we also need to talk about the way Obama has conducted the fight against terrorism. There's been a lot of disappointment and, indeed, uh, criticism and opposition on the part of many of our friends to what he's done with the NSA surveillance, the failure to close Gitmo, and, of course, about the drone war. What do you think about all of those? His record is mixed, but, again, we're going to miss him when he's gone, uh, and he's been better than, uh, far better than his uh, predecessor, um, And, you know, I think made some really important positive changes. Now, I've been a critic of a number of his initiatives, and I'm happy to talk about those. But, I mean, just on the positive side first, he came into office, and where President Bush's approach had been, I'm going to protect your security, law be damned, uh, and we're going to do everything we can to put law to the side. Guantanamo was a legal black hole. He asserted that no, no court had jurisdiction there. He asserted that the Geneva Conventions don't apply to people that are fighting against us on behalf of al-Qaeda. Uh, he asserted that the that federal statutes making it a crime to engage in warrantless wiretapping didn't apply to him uh, when he was uh, conducting the, the war on terror. President Obama took a very different tack when he came into office. He said, I'm going to fight al-Qaeda, and I'm going to use both military and criminal tools to do so. But I'm going to do so within the bounds of the rule of law. And by that, I mean constitutional law, 
statutory law and, importantly, international law, including human rights and and, uh, humanitarian law. You know, that's a very, very different message. One is, you know, I can be lawless uh, in the name of protecting American security. The other is we, you know, are, are uh, able to use all the tools available to us, but we those tools are defined by by law. And, of course, you know, he, uh, on his first day in office, banned torture, uh, closed the CIA's secret prisons, promised to close Guantanamo, a promise that was frustrated by Congress, but... Um, not his fault. It's Congress's fault, I think, in in large part. So I think there's a lot he did that's uh, on the positive side. And what about NSA surveillance and the revelations of Edward Snowden? Right now, Edward Snowden is living in Moscow. We we are all campaigning for clemency or a pardon or some kind of uh, agreement not to uh, prosecute. Uh, Snowden, where do you stand on all of that? So look, there's plenty of things to criticize, um, but you have to remember that the president is, you know, the president is going, when he faces uh, a threat like an organization like al-Qaeda that, you know, has killed 3,000 uh, innocent people in a horrific attack and has threatened to do uh, further uh, attacks, etc., uh, he's going to take, you know, he's going to take actions to, to try to respond to that. I, You know, with respect to NSA surveillance, I'm I'm very disappointed that as long as the program was secret, President Obama was willing to stick with um, what he was left by uh, President Bush. Uh, and it was only when it became public um, by, by Snowden's actions that President Obama shifted gears. And, and, and to his credit, at that point, he did shift gears. He appointed a commission. The commission recommended uh, reforms. He implemented a number of those reforms, and then he supported uh, the ultimate reform, which was, at least with respect to the domestic uh, part of the program, which was to um, end it through the USA Freedom Act. So, you know, he, he sh- should he have done that earlier? Absolutely. Um, but he did, you know, he did respond to the to the public uh, public concern that was raised uh, in response to Snowden's uh, allegations. I also criticize him for his drone uh, policy, yeah. a policy that at least at the outset involved the assertion of authority to kill people far from any battlefield without uh, even acknowledging that we were uh, doing so and without uh, any public uh, defense of, uh, of, of the program. Um, there were many people who criticized him for that. And over the course of his administration, the, the, the administration became much more public about the program and about the, the parameters of the program. And uh, he uh, ultimately promulgated a, a presidential policy guidance that limits when drones can be used outside of traditional um, war zones to a uh, fairly high standard. Uh, he's also gave, given information about how many uh, people have been uh, killed uh, using drone strikes, how many of them are uh, innocent civilians and, and the like. I think he needs to do more. I think that uh, much more transparency is necessary if the rule of law is actually going to be uh, followed with respect to drone strikes. But he did, you know, he did get better over time during his tenure, I think, in response to the criticisms of, of human rights and, and civil liberties organizations. 
you mentioned the issue of transparency. I, I remember that when o Obama <coughs> took office, I think it was maybe on his first day, he he announced that the, his administration would be the most transparent in history. He was going to revise their secrecy policies radically. Uh, this has certainly been a big disappointment to, to most of us. Absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah, he did say he, this would be the most transparent administration uh, in history. I uh, I don't think anyone would uh, would give him uh, high marks on, on that front. And, uh, and you know, as I said, the, the, the sort of capstone of it is that you know, even though he has now made public the guidance that governs the use of drones in general, and he has now given very bulk numbers about how many people have been killed, for each instance in which we use a drone to execute someone around the world, there is no public accountability. There's no accounting that we did it. There's no accounting of why we did it. There's no determination as to whether the criteria that are set, were set forth by President Obama were in fact met, um, namely that the person poses an imminent threat could not be captured, uh, there was no other way to neutralize him, and the risk to, to civilians was uh, near zero. That, those are the criteria. Those are great criteria, but without transparency, how can you assess whether those criteria are just a piece of paper or are actually being uh, followed in, 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 in reality? One way to assess Obama is the way we've been doing it here, which is to compare what he's done with what we hoped he would do and what he said he would do. Another way is to compare him to his predecessors. Where does he stand in the, in the line of presidents who have worked on, on civil rights? You know, I think um, the only president who did, I think, did more for civil rights was uh, LBJ, uh, and, and that was that was really because uh, LBJ was president at a particular moment in history, the 1960s, when there was tremendous tremendous popular movement toward civil rights. And so we got the the Voting Rights Act, we got uh, Title VII, we got a number of uh, civil rights statutes enacted, which have been played a critical role going going forward. And President Obama can't he, he can't you know match up to that, but the, those statutes were already on the books. The question was, you know, what's he going to do to address the problems that have been unaddressed with respect to civil rights? And those, I think, are race and the criminal justice system, where I think he played a very positive role. Uh, LGBT rights, where he also played a very uh, positive role, yeah. pushing for transgender uh, rights and, and, and marriage and the like. So, you know, I, I think, you know, LBJ number one, President Obama number two. Last question. How much credit would you give Obama for the good things he did on the issues we've been talking about, criminal justice reform, marriage equality? And how much credit would you give to the groups that, that demanded action and pushed him to move? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's of course, uh, a, a fantastic question. And, I, you know, I think, look, it wouldn't have happened without both. Um, and uh, you know, just as LBJ was the major civil rights, uh, uh, you know, advancer because of the civil rights movements that were, uh, you know, in, in, in very strong at that time, so too, it's, it's no coincidence uh, that where Obama has moved forward has been on LGBT uh, rights and race and the criminal justice, and because that's where 
popular movements and civil society have been focusing their attention in a very um, strong and strategic way. Um, so, you know, but you, you, you need both. If, if, with all that push, if President Bush had been in office over the last eight years, or if President Trump had been in office, or President Romney in office, I just don't think you would have seen anything like the kinds of measures that we saw coming out of the Obama administration. David Cole, he wrote about Obama's legacy for civil rights and civil liberties for the nation's special issue on the Obama era. You can read it online at thenation.com. David, thanks for your piece. Thanks for talking with us today. And thanks for taking the lead at the ACLU starting in a couple of weeks. Well, always great to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.